The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 8th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. This morning, we're going to do something maybe for a week or maybe three. Where I'm asking God to, to help recalibrate our hearts and our minds and how we understand the purpose, and the value of the church. We're going to look at the church for a few weeks, or what Charles Spurgeon famously called the dearest place on earth. The Bible, I don't know if you knew this or not, has a lot to say about the church. Who comprises the church? How the church is led? What kind of things you should see growing in a church that's healthy? And, and it's our intention, Lord willing, that in January, top of the calendar year, we'll take a little more time to go in-depth in those things the Bible has to say about the church. But this week, this morning, and maybe for the next week or two, we're just hoping to whet your appetite a little bit for that. And we're asking God to recalibrate how we think about the church in the first place. And so to do that, I have to acknowledge the, the physical face and the physical tension that I could see in some people when I talked about Spurgeon calling the church the dearest place on earth. You might not think you have a tell, but some of you do. I want to alleviate any fear or concern that you have that the recalibration I'm after is you begin to think this is some kind of perfect place here on earth. Because for some of you, it is a work of God's kindness and grace in your life for you to even be here sitting this morning. For some of you, somewhere in your history with the church, you've been significantly hurt. You've been frustrated. You've been disappointed. For others, you've been abused. For that, we are so sorry. For you to be here this morning is a testimony of God's continued grace to you. So to hear a recalibration on the church being the dearest place on earth, for some of you, you didn't even know you did it. You tensed. So to alleviate some of the fear, I just want you to hear the rest of what Spurgeon had to say as we get started, okay? This is what he said. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you haven't. If I had never joined a church till I had found the one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join said church, if I had actually found it, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, Spurgeon said, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? You see, if it's right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone to refrain. And if then, what of the testimony for God that would be lost to a watching world? So first off, in our effort of recalibration, I just want you to take a deep breath. Spurgeon wasn't saying the church was perfect to be dear. He knew how imperfect the church really was. 
how frustrating it can be, how disappointing it can be, chiefly because he was there. So let me start off saying this. If you're fairly new to Redemption Hill, you've been here for just a short period of time, you have not found us disappointing or frustrating, thank you, stick around. At some point, we are going to disappoint you and frustrate you because we're not a perfect people. So from the get-go, I don't want to talk about recalibrating our thoughts or understanding of the church in any way that we're not. We're not perfect, chiefly because I'm here. I'm going to disappoint you at some point or frustrate you or let you down. That's not the picture I want us to see. We're not a perfect people, so we can relax a little bit. Yet Spurgeon said something of tremendous importance there. Spurgeon said, if we, don't, if we don't think about the church rightly, something of tremendous significance stands to be lost. If we don't rightly understand the church, there's something of tremendous significance that can be lost. It's starting to be lost at an alarming rate these days. See, it's no secret in the world that we live in now, in, in the day and age that we're in in this country, that an alarming number of people who would profess to be followers of Jesus equally profess they find no value or use or need for the church. And I'll tell you, the, the, the sheer numbers of people speaking this way are not saying that because of any type of particular offense, even because of any particular teaching. But according to those who do research on the contemporary church, and again, research like that and polls like that, or like any other polls and research you find, they're always slanted towards one degree or another, but you can sift through them to find the, the truths and the nuggets that are there. According to those who study these kinds of things for the, the American church today, the reason so many people profess to be followers of Jesus but equally profess to find no value or need in the church for their life is ultimately because, as they say, they find the church to be inefficient. And in being inefficient, they're not talking about operating systems. I will tell you right now, as an organization, we are utterly inefficient. The church is inefficient in that sense. We don't delve in widgets. We deal with people. It's inefficient. But that's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is something akin to what you and I might understand as outsourcing. In today's day and age, many people find it much more convenient to be able to open up their phone, find a preacher they enjoy better than the preacher at their local church, find music they enjoy more than the music at their local church, find causes to be a part of that their church has no interest in but somehow warms their heart. It can give of their time and give of their resources right there. Young people are going to college, having grown up in the church, finding wonderful campus ministries full of people just like themselves, more passionate than the people they find at their local church and can open up their phone and get the preaching and get the music and get the groups. Praise God for the campus ministries here that find value in the local church. It's not common across campuses in America. Parents and families are no different. Even as we begin to have kids and grow up a little bit, we still find the same preachers you like better than me on the phone. I find them. Music we like better, and ready-made Christian schools for our kids to go into to learn about Jesus, to have youth group, and for us to find people in the same stage of life that we're in, just like we did in college. And the church, if it's simply the purveyor of information about who God is, 
and the scheduler of our various churchy things becomes inefficient. All of it begs the question, what's really the purpose of the church? I mean, if it does just exist to disseminate information about God and find scheduling opportunities for you to do things that seem somewhat churchy, then yes, it's utterly inefficient. You can find better everywhere of what it is that you want. You can outsource all of it. The question for us to consider this morning, friends, is how important is the church to you? How important is the church to your life? The better question, though, as we seek to have our hearts and our minds recalibrated is to ask it this way. How important is the church to God? That's the key to having our hearts recalibrated. And so I'll let you in on something as we get started this morning. It's more important than you probably think. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the New Testament book of Ephesians. To begin answering this question and trusting God to recalibrate our hearts as to the purpose and the importance of the local church, we're going to start here. And we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to crescendo to some degree in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 like the worship God says, but to understand the full weight of what Paul is saying, we've got to go back. So this morning is going to be a little different. I'm simply going to read. I'm going to make some comments along the way, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to make our way through. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's begin there. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Don't be confused. It's the work of God, not a result of your work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So take a moment right there and just drink in that gospel goodness right there. Take it in as deep as you can. Paul is reminding the church that while you were at your utter worst, dead, he says, in your sin, enemies of God, his son came to live the life that you were created to live and to die the death that you deserve to die in your place for your sin. 
It wasn't on a good day that God looked down and decided to love you. It was at that time in your life when you were mo- that you were most ashamed of. It's that time in your life that you would give any amount of money to go back and change the events that happened. It's that time of your life, at your worst, that you most regret that he came and he said, you're mine. He opened up, Paul says later, the eyes of your heart to see the magnitude of his glory and the person and work of his son. And he said, you're mine. And you said, I'm yours. Paul says, drink that in. Friends, this is why Jesus is everything to us. This is why you hear around here in different phrases and different ways that this good news, this gospel, is the center of all that we think and all that we do. And Paul can't get enough of it. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Therefore, because of this grace shown to you at your utter worst by God and his Son, therefore, remember, it's a curious command, but remember, At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So now he's not talking to everybody generally. He's directing his attention now to some people who make up the church, who came from a different background. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Don't forget that, he says. Don't forget it. But now, he says, Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. you got to understand, the hostility that would have existed naturally, the enmity between the people that made up this church, is something most of us can't get our heads around. There was an ethnic hostility in this church between those who grew up as Gentiles, uncircumcision in the flesh, and those who grew up as Israelites, part of God's covenant people, that would lead to battles and death and war. The man writing this letter as a passionate Pharisee sought to put to death some people who would follow this Jesus. There is a hostility at play that Paul is talking about here that you and I and all of our outrage today can't really always get our heads around. But Paul says the grace of God has done something profound to that thing. He's taken these people of disparate places and he's made them one. And he can't stop talking about it. Verse 17, he says, he came and preached peace to those of you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. I want you to hear something this morning in verse 17. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that verse 17 is an encapsulation of your story to some degree. When Paul says that Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were near, I want you to hear it this way. There were some of you who grew up on a Saturday night gathering together with your family at dinner, praying for church the next day. 
praying that God's power would go through the preaching of his word, that people would come to give their lives to Jesus. You would wake up on Sunday, have breakfast, go to church together, go to Sunday school, go to youth group, go to retreats, go to everything that was there. You grew up, so to speak, near to the promises of God. The same way that God's covenant people, Israel, grew up near to the promises of God and the work of his life and his word to them. Some of you grew up near, and at some point in all of that activity and in all of that work, God stepped in and opened your eyes. And you saw his glory in Jesus and all these things that have been near to you your whole life, and you gave yourself to him, and he said, you're mine. And you said, I'm yours. And you've got to catch, there, there are degrees of nearness. I mean, there were some of you who grew up in homes that were kind of like that. You did all of those things. But in all of those things, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about the grace of God and the work of God and the gospel. So all of those things, week in and week out, year after year, all the busyness, all the activity, all it did was stack up like a weight on your shoulders. It put before you a target you thought you had to achieve before God could love you. And at some point in your life, you just said, I can't do it, and you turned. And somewhere in your story, though you had been near to a degree, God still stepped in. And he opened up your eyes. And you saw his glory in Christ and his grace to you through his son. And you said, I'm yours. And he said, you're mine. But there are some of you who are in here who didn't grow up near, so to speak. You grew up far off. Your Saturday nights and your Sunday mornings, your Sunday nights and your Wednesday nights, it didn't look like that. Different things happened in your house on Saturday night. Different things happened on Sunday morning. And God said, at some point in your trajectory, in your journey, he stepped in and preached peace to your heart. And you saw his glory. And you tasted his grace. And you said, I'm yours. And he said, you're mine. Somewhere in this room, verse 17 is a part of all of your stories if you are his God, through the person and work of his son, takes people who were near, and he takes people who were far off, and he makes them into one new people. That's the church. So listen to what Paul says, verse 18. It's through him that we have access in one spirit to the Father. It's through Jesus. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. He's mixing metaphors, but it's okay. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the, God's word. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's a huge statement. We're going to come back to that if we have time. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, together, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So chapter 3 starts this way. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And you've got this little dash in your Bible right there. You see it in the text? It's because Paul's about to go off on a rabbit trail. He's about to pray, and he decides he's not done talking. He picks up the prayer in verse 14 because he's still got more to say about the gospel in the church. So don't get mad when your teachers go off on rabbit trails. It's holy. It's right. Just require we come back with a rabbit. Assuming, Paul says in verse 2, that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. 
When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's this mystery? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, those who in Paul's words were far off, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery of Christ is that the death, resurrection of Jesus didn't simply purchase eternal life for those who would believe. He formed an entirely new people who are both now heirs of his promise and his grace. Paul is talking about the church. He can't stop talking about the church and what God has done by his grace for his people. Paul just can't keep going. There's a supernatural grace-filled unity in life that Paul is caught up talking about and excited about. So look at what he says in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, we're almost there, you ready? And, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What's the plan, Paul? Verse 10. I told you we'd get there. Through the church. That new people, made up of those who were far and near, made one by the grace of God towards them, this new people through whom the grace of God, by the grace of God, the hostility has been taken down. This new people who had nothing of natural affinity towards each other outside of their love for Christ himself, this new people, the church, Paul says. It's been God's intention for his manifold wisdom to be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, and this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, I don't know what you came in here this morning thinking the purpose or the value of the church is, but for God, He has intended for all of eternity for the manifold wisdom of His plan in the gospel to be put on display to a watching world and a watching cosmos, not through our media feeds, but through the life of His church together, period. That has been his purpose. Which is why we might need some recalibration in our minds and our hearts when we think about the church. Because I want you just to be honest with yourself for a moment this morning. Do you live your life with an awareness or a sense of the magnitude of what you are caught up in by belonging to Jesus? That's what we're dealing with here. We have been caught up into something of eternal and cosmic significance in the eternal plan of God. How much of our life, the relationships we have, the jobs we have, the schools we're at, of our day in and day out, how much of it is caught up with a sense of the magnitude of what we have been brought into by the grace of God? There's no space for outsourcing, friends but we're so easily distracted 
our affections are so easily swayed. I, I wish I could remember who said it. I have it written down in a, a notebook, but I heard a pastor say it one time, and I felt it true of my heart then, and I know it true of our lives now. He said that our lives lack the flavor of eternity and the aroma of something ultimate. We have been brought into something of eternal and ultimate significance. The church is meant by God to demonstrate the wisdom of His plan. So how do you see the wisdom of a plan that's been put in place? Not a trick question. When you create a plan and you put a plan in place, how do you see the wisdom of the plan? You see it in the fact that it works. The church is meant to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to a watching cosmos by showing that the gospel works. That the death of Christ was not in vain. How do we do that? How do you show that? How do you demonstrate that? Well, you demonstrate that when redeemed sinners with very little in common. Many who have been far off, many who grew up near, when they choose to love each other, serve each other, weep with each other, sing with each other, celebrate with each other, sacrifice for each other, people they would not naturally choose to do so with, when this begins to happen, the manifold wisdom of God is put on display like nothing else this world could produce. His wisdom is seen in the gospel-centered, grace-driven, mission-minded, supernatural unity of His people. Friends, this is why, for all the good that is produced, and I'm not bemoaning the good that's produced, but this is why the kind of unity that puts God's wisdom, the gospel, His grace on display to a watching world and cosmos the way that God intends, this is why for all the good produced, all the efforts we get at getting people together to go and, and clean up a neighborhood or, or somehow affect some kind of social change for all the positive and all the good, it's why that kind of unity can never produce what Paul's talking about here. Because the unity that God is talking about that puts his wisdom on display is a unity that is born out of and grounded in the gospel. You can't outsource that. At some point, this, look back, look back at verse 19. I don't have a ton of time. We're going to go back there. Look at this. This is why Paul says this. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, no matter how passionate we are about something that seeks to do good for someone else around us, unless it is established by and fueled by our deepening enjoyment of Jesus, it will not hold together ultimately. The kind of unity that puts God's wisdom on display can't be produced or found there because at some point all those little bricks and, and buildings are going to fall apart. Someone's going to pick up their ball and go home. This kind of unity, everybody wanting unity, this kind of unity is only found in the church, born out of the grace of God in the gospel fueled by a deepening enjoyment of God's grace amongst his people. 
If Jesus isn't the cornerstone, if the gospel isn't the center, then ultimately everything will fall to the ground. It's not the kind of unity God has eternally purposed. You see, it's in the local church that we learn to share our lives with people who share maybe only one thing with us. I mean, there might not be anything about our lives that we share in common. The things we like, the things we enjoy, where we came from, where we live, what we're trying. There might be nothing. We could sit down for an hour and have nothing in common. We might even dislike some of those things that each other enjoy. But we have one like in common, one very profound like in common. And that's Christ Jesus who forgave us of our sins. See, what do you think begins to happen in your heart? when you continue to enjoy the depth of the gospel on a daily basis. On a daily basis when you're reminded of your sinfulness, but yet you're reminded of the magnitude of God's grace to you in His Son. As you continue to enjoy the grace of God on a day in and day out basis and your satisfaction in the gospel grows, what do you think begins to happen? All of a sudden, that defining work of God towards you in His Son becomes the defining way you understand yourself. Yes, but what do you think happens after that? The more you and I enjoy the depth of God's grace towards us in Christ, when we're reminded of the magnitude of the mercy and the forgiveness shown us by Jesus, when we see again just how sinful we are, how in ourselves and in our best moments, unlovable. And yet he loved us. When you and I enjoy the depth of God's grace on a day in and day out basis, what happens is that you and I reflexively become quicker to extend that same kind of grace to others. When you are again in awe of the magnitude of God's forgiveness and grace shown to you for very legitimate offenses against him, all the accusations you feel in your head, you can say yes and amen, that's true, but they've already been dealt with on the cross. I'm aware of them, but I see the forgiveness that is mine in Christ. How much more quickly do you and I, out of an enjoyment of that grace, how much more quickly are you and I able to take legitimate offenses amongst each other and extend to them the same kind of grace that's been extended to us? Friends, there is a power in the gospel, not only for our own depth of enjoyment and joy, but for a particular type of life lived amongst God's people. A depth of mercy and grace and forgiveness that an age of outrage like ours simply has no category for. Forgiveness simply comes more quickly as our hearts enjoy at deeper levels on a daily basis the forgiveness that has been extended to us by God, so in that same grace, driven by that same grace, are we able to extend it to others. But you know it to be true in your own heart. The further away your heart slips from a delight and enjoyment of this gospel, the colder your heart becomes. You know what happens when these very legitimate offenses occur, don't you? It's not an extension of the forgiveness and the grace that you've received from God that you want to extend to someone else. What is it you want? I want justice. 
I want that thing dealt with. Friends, the last thing you wanted from God in the face of your sins was that same justice. But as your hearts have drifted further away from the enjoyment of the gospel, it's harder and harder for you and I to extend so quickly that same kind of forgiveness to others. Friends, this is why, according to the writer of Hebrews, we don't neglect gathering together because we want to hear again from God's word, sung through the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the sermons preach, the fullness of God's grace towards us in Christ, lest our hearts grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in the world around us and we slip away from an enjoyment and a delight in the gospel. It's why we talk about seeing Jesus and enjoying the gospel day in and day out in his word. It's why we encourage reading the Bible together in our CBR program that we might see and enjoy Jesus on a daily basis so that we might display that same kind of forgiveness and grace in the lives that we live. You see, it's not just that extension of that kind of forgiveness and grace that happens when you and I enjoy the gospel more deeply. You know what happens? At some point in your life, following Jesus, being obedient to God's word is going to prove difficult for you. Everybody in here who's a follower of Christ, there are certain things that God commands of his people that come easy to you. You don't struggle with those things, but there are things that come hard for you. At some point in your life, following Jesus is going to take you to a place where it is going to be hard for you to be obedient to his word. Because being obedient to Christ might mean losing your job. Being obedient might mean losing a particular relationship. Being obedient might mean it cuts into your checkbook, your bottom line. Being obedient might take you from one place to another. And in those moments when obedience gets hard, the natural thing for our hearts to do is to wonder, is God really for me in this? Is this really what he wants of me here? the more savvy of you start arguing, well, what was the cultural context of that? Does that still stand today? Is that still what he wants of me? At some point, obedience is going to become difficult. But here's the thing. As you and I enjoy the grace of God more deeply on a daily basis, do you know what we're confronted with? We're confronted with the magnitude of God's goodness towards us so that like an anchor for our soul in those times when we don't know which way to go and it looks hard going ahead, it looks hard following him, we realize how could he be anything but for me in this? How could obedience be for anything other than my deepest joy and his greatest glory? All of a sudden we realize because of our heart's deepening enjoyment of his grace that even here obedience is worth it. And guess what? To a watching world where there is a, an ecosystem, so to speak, of people encouraging each other in this grace, forgiving each other in this grace, helping each other be obedient through this grace, there is an apologetic for the wisdom of God that a watching world has zero answer for. And this was God's intended purpose for the church for all of eternity. I don't know what you thought the purpose of the church was when you came in. But there is something eternally and cosmically significant at stake. The church is meant to be a display that the death of the Son of God was not in vain. 
The question we have to wrestle with is, will we then, as the church, live as though God is wise or foolish in saving us by His grace and making us one in Christ? There is a world that is watching. There is a cosmic significance to this reality. I mean, when was the last time you even considered the role or the impact or the value of the church in something even like evangelism? I mean, just listen. John chapter 13, just listen. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Talking to the church now, talking to his disciples. Love one another just as I has loved, have loved you, so you must love one another. So just as you have been loved by the grace of God towards you in Christ, just as you have received that kind of grace from him and your heart is enjoying the depth of that grace and mercy to you, you are to extend that same kind of grace and forgiveness and love and mercy to others, right? That's what we've been saying. Then he says this, by this all men will know that you're mine if you love one another. How, how does God intend for all men to know that we are his and that he's worth it? Is it by how, how well you can argue? Is it by how many verses you've memorized? Is it by how on point our social media game is as a church? Is that how the watching world knows that we're his and he's worth it? The eternal purpose of God to put on display the manifold wisdom of the gospel has always been and will continue to be the way that his people love one another. Even before he goes, John chapter 17, Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples. Listen to what he says. I pray also for those who will believe in me through them, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also in us, be in us, so that the world, why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be brought to complete unity. A unity that is only born out of, sustained by, and driven by the gospel, the good news of God's grace to us. Why? Let the world know. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. How does the world know that God extends his kindness and grace to them the same way he has loved his own son? It's through the gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded unity of his people. It's always been his plan. It hasn't changed. It's always been the most faithful and fruitful apologetic for the gospel that has ever existed. I mean, where else are broken and exhausted and burnt out people in this world going to go to experience a place where people count others as more important than themselves? Where people work to outdo one another in showing honor. That's meant to be a reflection of God's wisdom amongst his people. Friends, our world is drowning in selfishness and conceit all the work and the labor and the effort of trying to constantly continue to make a name for yourselves, and we get drawn right into it, lest our hearts, ah, the only way to keep from getting so drawn into that 
is for our hearts to go more deeply satisfied on a daily basis in God's grace, or we're going to find ourselves in the same place. And do you know what happens? That road leads nowhere but to sheer exhaustion and eternal separation from the one who created us. How are they to know that he's worth it? How are they to know? It's always been God's purpose for the world to know the majesty and the grandeur of his wisdom and his grace as they see his people enjoying him more and more on a daily basis and putting their enjoyment of him on display. That is God's incomparable calling for the church. It always has been. It will always continue to be until he returns. As imperfect as we are, as imperfect as the church is, by the grace of God, it can still be the dearest place to us on earth. Without which, the testimony of God to the world is lost. I don't know what you thought the value or the purpose of the church was when you came in. But may God, in His grace, in kindness towards us, recalibrate our hearts towards His purpose for the church. There's a world that is watching. Friends, let us show them by the way that we live, by our enjoyment of His grace together, let us show them that His plan has not failed, that He's worth it. Let me pray for us this morning and we'll prepare to respond. Father, I thank you this morning that you, you have not held back from us your plan for all eternity that was hidden for a period of time from some, but you have revealed through your word your purpose for your people, for the church. God, recalibrate our hearts. We're, we're so prone to low thoughts, not just of you and of the gospel, but of your church. Recalibrate our hearts this morning, Lord. We, we want to see you and your kindness and grace more clearly. We want to enjoy the goodness of your gospel more deeply that we might display to a watching world what you have intended for all of eternity, that you're worth it, that they might know you love them just as you loved your son and have loved us. Help us to not look down or minimize this calling you have for us as a church, but help us to enjoy it, to trust your strategic wisdom for your glory. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.